History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is God's Rambo. So with a name like God's Rambo, I feel like we don't need much to to give us a more interesting start, but I wanted to start today out by asking you, uh, given the amount of danger today's subject put himself in, uh, what the most dangerous thing you've ever done is. And then a follow-up question after you answer that is what the most dangerous thing you'd consider doing is. So we've got a a real-life question and then a hypothetical question. Well, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, so I think every day is a dangerous day <laughs> in my life. Not really. Bullets we have a beautiful <laughs> city. <laughs> That's one of my biggest objections to people not from Youngstown is they're like, oh, Youngstown, you can get a mansion for $200,000. You're going to get shot in your front yard. <laughs> I mean, that's not really true at all. No. I feel like if fine. you drove down like Oak Hill Avenue every day at night, maybe there you'd are, be in more danger. There are definitely like, quote unquote, nicer cities that are more dangerous than the average place in Youngstown. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would a hundred times over walk through at night the worst neighborhood in Youngstown over the worst neighborhood in New York or Miami or Chicago or LA like I mean I probably wouldn't voluntarily walk through the worst neighborhood in any of those cities including Youngstown (laughs) at night fair but (laughs) but like most of Youngstown's okay and downtown and things like that yeah but as far as the most dangerous thing I've ever done I am not much of a risk taker i guess so i don't really have any cool stories i guess the only thing i had come up with was like when i was 16 and went to new orleans we i was with a group like a church group and did this thing where uh we were standing around or walking around the city with a free hug sign trying to see how many people we could get hugs from (laughs) which like probably really wasn't that dangerous because it was a huge national church youth group thing so like yeah most of them were just other teenage kids but there were some strangers too and that i mean in hindsight probably could have been a dangerous situation but yeah well i mean i guess <laughs> that's what i i assumed would be a, a story of yours and mine too like i don't think either one of us actively has chosen highly dangerous situations like mine would probably be traveling to italy alone and at the end of the day like i was never that in danger but yeah i mean when we when we went to venice it was nighttime by the time we got there by the time we got off our train and we're trying to find our hotel and you've been to venice it's literally a maze like it's so Mm -hmm. (laughs) hard to know where you're going especially if you've never been there before and it's pitch black out but it was never like i don't know it didn't feel unsafe at any point right maybe that's just a well that's cultural i mean that is like Everybody I talk to, and I don't know how much I agree. I mean, I guess conceptually I agree. 
I didn't experience the same thing, but everybody I talked to says that Paris and Venice and Rome are the most dangerous places in Europe because they're tourist traps. Yeah, and yeah, I could see that. So the people who want to prey on Americans and tourists just flock there versus like small towns where nobody speaks English, which might seem more dangerous, but really aren't because nobody there cares. Right. Like they're not there to take advantage of you. But I, I mean, I agree with that. I There are definitely times where I don't know that I... I didn't intentionally put myself in danger, but I could see like given a couple bad decisions or just wrong place, wrong time kind of things where I could have certainly been in a rough spot. And we're definitely Um, speaking from a place where there's probably a lot of people who are different than us that would feel more uncomfortable in situations by which I mean, yeah, we're white adult males who can kind of just go places without being too worried about the our yeah. situations right so what's the most dangerous thing you'd consider doing like it, it, off the top of your head voluntarily that, like i mean maybe not voluntarily like i guess voluntarily yes but i mean what's the most dangerous <laughs> what's the worst thing you would allow yourself to do even given some like pressure i guess i mean voluntarily i wouldn't be opposed to i don't know white water rafting on a dangerous rapid or maybe skydiving or something like that but if you're talking about i don't know putting myself in harm's way i wouldn't really want to be on the front lines of an army battle or something like that but if you know (laughs) the draft was reinstated i suppose there's a there's a scenario where that might be my fate (laughs) (laughs) that's a i'm glad you brought that up because our our topic today helga meyer actually drove a 1979 Camaro through a war zone for several years to deliver aid. Would you consider doing that? <laughs> yeah, that's just a joyride, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what that is. <laughs> so today's topic is Helga Meyer and the Ghost Camaro. Um, and before we get into the specifics of his feats, I'd like to you know, give a little bit of background on the Bosnian War. I found it interesting that to stop for a moment, Helga Meyer was one of the people that when we started this podcast, I saw first. And I have to give credit to the blog Badass of the Week, because that's where I actually found his name. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a blog that basically tells these stories of all these, you know, people in history that did these overwhelming feats uh, that kind of seem superhuman. But I didn't think he fit into the history's B-side idea enough to be one of our first episodes so I, I saved him for a little bit later but I, I had to tell the story because it's just so cool and it's just fun and I feel like we've had a lot of stressful sad topics lately so I wanted to do something that was a little bit more fun and upbeat good so there won't be anything but, sad or horrible or inhumane in this episode just genocide and rape but oh good only the a basics. little bit <laughs> the basics history sucks, I realized man. well while doing this there's just no way you can talk about history without talking about sad despicable things human beings are rough they're we're a rough species man this podcast was so, supposed to be fun <laughs> instead it's just depressing every week so i in in the course of researching this i realized that not only is helga meyer a good b-sider but the bosnian war in itself is kind of a b-sider because Despite the fact that this was going on during and for the first few years after our birth, like I know nothing about it. 
Um, I mean, I knew to a degree that the Balkan Peninsula had conflict, but that's as specific as my statement got. Yeah, it doesn't get a lot <laughs> of attention in the American education of world no. history. Well, that's because that's we weren't, I mean, outside of being an aid provider and kind of a a backer of certain sides, we weren't really involved. But the Bosnian War is kind of an interesting topic because it was one of the most bloody and violent war crime-ridden conflicts since World War II. Uh, and it began in 1992 after the breakup of what was called the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Now, Yugoslavia is, of course, on the Balkan Peninsula, and it formed after World War II, uh, prior to that being the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, which was essentially the same region, but World War II, it was occupied by, Al or I'm sorry, Axis forces from Italy and Germany, and afterwards was reformed as this federal republic. And it contained at the time after the Second World War, six republics, which were Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, which are the same state, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Herzegovina are one state, um, and then Montenegro and Macedonia. So pretty much everything north of Greece <laughs> up to Austria. And this area was really kind of fraught with a lot of ethnic tension. I mean, it's in a part of the world that that's often said of, you know, you have all of these different ethnic groups, including Muslims and Catholics that mixed and mingled. It's funny that you mention all these nations and even just Yugoslavia in itself. I remember, I mean, obviously this happened in the early, early years of our own lives, but I remember mm. being in school and looking at world maps and Yugoslavia was still labeled as one country. Now, when you look at the map, you yeah. have these six different nations or however that are just individually sovereign and have their own borders and everything. But there were still in our right. own history books when we were in school, Yugoslavia was on the map. Maybe they just were just out of date by a few years, but... Definitely is memorable from our lifetime. Yeah, any map that was made before 1991 would have had Yugoslavia as its own nation. So you've got this chunk of land that is is kind of rife for a political and an ethnic strife. And it, it, it was part of what was called... I mean, this is kind of a fun fact. It doesn't have much to do with the war, but... It was part of what was called the non-alignment uh, movement, which was essentially a group of small bergening countries that weren't aligned with major superpowers. So as a lot of us know, the Soviet Union had all of these ally countries that were also communist and the United States and, and much of Western Europe had all of these other countries that were aligned with them. Despite being a socialist republic, Yugoslavia wasn't aligned with, you know, the communist USSR. Was there a reason for that? Was it, I mean, similar ideology or why weren't they working together? There were definitely more communist ideologies there. I don't know that there was a specific reason for it. Um, that didn't necessarily come up in my research. My guess is that there was just so much, so many different ideologies in this region that they found it best to not participate in the overall conflict. They were also a very small, um, kind of inconsequential region after the first the second world war so i don't know that they were a target for larger world powers to to get involved in influencing now make no mistake these world powers did become an influence during the bosnian <laughs> war 
Um, but we will get to that. So you've got this, this country that, you know, forms after World War II. Um, under its first president, President Tito, it was actually pretty calm. He was a very anti-nationalist uh, leader, and he encouraged all of these different groups, these different republics to cooperate. But after his death uh, during the 1980s, the, the country kind of fell into economic collapse. And this led to a lot of ethnic tensions and nationalism among the six republics that I mentioned. After his death, the republics kind of fall apart. They start to collapse in on one another. And being the, the not the biggest necessarily, but the most powerful of them, Serbia started to flex its political muscle. And one of the things it did is it amended its constitution. Um, so Serbia, if you're not familiar with the geography, is on the eastern side of what would be Yugoslavia. So just east of Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it actually splits into three separate regions. Two autonomous regions come off of it in the north, Vojvodina, and in the south, Kosovo. So basically splits into three and so it controls three votes and in addition controls a fourth vote which is Montenegro and so you've got this republic which is now eight votes deep and Serbia essentially controls four of those so an overwhelming amount of political imbalance towards Serbia it also had one of the strongest militaries of the republics and Due to this imbalance of power, further tensions start to increase. Now, it's important to mention, and, and we'll come back to this multiple times, but many of these countries, including Croatia and including Bosnia and Herzegovina, have a mix of Serbians, Croats, and Bosniaks. So everybody's kind of living in different pockets. So it's not like Serbia's, Serbians are all in Serbia. They're kind of thrown all over the region, which contributes to the, the conflict later on. And I'm looking at a map here of, I guess, what would have been Yugoslavia at the time. And Bosnia and mm -hmm. Herzegovina is just kind of in the middle of the entire thing. So it, right. it's really just whether it had anything to do with their own politics or whatever, you have this coalition of Serbia and Kosovo and Montenegro and everything that the only way to get to the rest of Yugoslavia is through Bosnia and Herzegovina, which really kind of forced them into the middle right. of this conflict. Exactly. And, you know, it, it is also one, like I just mentioned, there are these different ethnic groups strewn around. It was one of the most divided. So, you know, before we get to the, the different secessions from this federation, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina was made up of, Muslim Bosniaks, which were the, the what I guess you would call the local people. Um, and then you had Orthodox Catholic Serbs and Catholic Croats. So you had Serb, Serbs, Croats, and then Bosniaks all within this same country. And they lived in different pockets. And these pockets weren't, you know, perfect lines like states would be. They were intermixed. There were pockets secluded. And this led later to a lot of really bloody and violent conflict. But the first thing to start this was after the, the Serbian government starts to take over more control, Croatia and Slovenia, which is the furthest north part republic, I guess, of, of Yugoslavia, just underneath Austria, they both secede in 1991. So <laughs> they leave the federation, declare their own independence. And then shortly after that, in February of 1992, this region that we've discussed, uh, which was at the time called the Socialist Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, 
declared its own independence. So this is the region I was talking about that has all of these different ethnic groups mixed in. And this obviously was a problem for Serbian forces. Their, their purpose, their goal was to keep Yugoslavia together. They held all the power. And so in a weird way, this is, I guess, akin to the secession of the southern states in the United States. Like, not the same issue, clearly, but... Yeah, but you have the, the I guess, northern states who may disagree ideologically with the southern states, but it benefits them to remain one united nation. Right. Just strictly for so, political power and population right. and resources. So it, it makes sense for them to want to keep it together, even if they don't necessarily like each other. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, Yugoslavia controlled by Serbia with Croatia and Slovenia and Bosnia and Herzegovina was better than a Yugoslavia without those. Obviously, the Serbian forces have a problem with this. And so the the war initially starts once Bosnia and Herzegovina decides to secede and declare its independence. And so Serbian forces start fighting against an allied group of Bosnian and Croatian forces. This gets even more complicated when in 1992, at the start of the war, the allied Bosnian and Croatian forces begin fighting with each other as well. So now you've got three <laughs> different groups fighting with each other. You've got Croatian forces, Bosnian forces, and Serbian forces. Now, this luckily ended three years into the war in 1994 with what, with what was called the Washington Agreement, which essentially brought the Croatian and Bosnian forces together and allied them against the Serbians. Why was it called the Washington Agreement? Uh, I mean, it was signed in Washington, D.C. That oh, was, I okay. mean, that was it. It was under the Clinton administration. The United States wasn't directly involved. There were many countries that were involved in backing financially and and economically different sides, including delivering aid. But one of the things that was bad about this conflict is that there were so many different sides that almost all other powerful countries were kind of afraid to get directly involved because it was a powder keg. I mean, the United States didn't have enough stakes there to go to physical war because it would anger a bunch of other nations that it was, you know, not in, at war with, but not friendly with. So, and that was true for dozens of nations. It just wasn't worth it to go into this region and directly fight. Yeah, I mean, I'm as I was reading through your sort of notes here about what we were going to talk about today... It was kind of hard to follow. I mean, I, I can kind of understand why we're not really taught this in school because there are a lot of different sides to it and it's hard to really know who's in the right here and who's fighting who. And right. It would be understandably difficult for the United States or any of these other more powerful nations to pick one side because then you're immediately ruining any ally or relationship you had with the others and... It's exactly kind of hard to know where to what the moral side is here. Well, I think it's as if not more complicated than the conflicts in the Middle East. There's all these different. I mean, it's not just nations against nations. You've got ethnicities against other ethnicities. And, you know, even outside of Bosnia and Herzegovina, there were Serbian people, citizens of Croatia that Serbia wanted to control and get back. So. I mean, there's so many different levels to the conflict. It wasn't just, you know, a classic war like, you know, France versus England. <laughs> you know, there was like dozens of different groups. And there were even, I mean, this this created such unrest that there were even smaller 
bandit groups that weren't a part of any national militia or military that decided to fight. I mean, it was, I guess, akin to what we see sometimes in Africa where governments are so destabilized, or, or even in the Middle East where governments are so destabilized that you just have civilian populations and very, very large gangs starting to have enough power to, to fight back. So, I mean, it was an extraordinarily messy conflict. And it continues um, now that, I mean, we've got Croatia and Bosnians back together fighting the Serbians, which does tip the scale a little bit. I mean, the Serbians remained the kind of powerhouse throughout the war. They were clearly the ones with more military might. But in 1995, a NATO-led Operation Deliberate Force, which I love these names. I, I, <laughs> I want to know who names these. But this, this Operation Deliberate Force targets specific Serbian army positions and kind of balances the power out. And this leads to them forcing kind of a, a, a peace treaty, which was signed in Paris in late 1995. But it was actually, I mean, to give a little bit of local connection to you and I being from Ohio, the terms of this agreement were actually negotiated in Dayton, Ohio. Why Dayton? <laughs> so... I mean, I mean, the, the the only reason I could find was because it was so far away and and kind of obscure that it prevented the different sides from using the media to negotiate and force them to only negotiate at the meeting. That's still so random. Like, there's got to be so many different cities. Well, there, there's an Air Force base in Dayton, too. Uh, I don't know if that okay. adds any. I mean, that was where it was done at the Air Force base in Dayton, not just at like a coffee shop. <laughs> Why not Vienna, Ohio? A little closer <laughs> so, to us. I'm, I don't know. So these these things are called the Dayton Accords, and they're signed in Paris in late 1995, about a month after they're negotiated in Ohio. Uh, and this essentially ends the conflict uh, and leads to the borders we have now, which are Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, Kosovo, and then Macedonia and Montenegro in the south. So those are the present-day countries that exist. And this is essentially a ceasefire, but it, it, it's still, I mean, the, the aftermath was kind of crazy. I mean, it, it was one of the most devastating conflicts in Europe since World War II. In 2008, the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia, which was held in The Hague, found 45 Serbs, 12 Croats, and four Bosniaks guilty of war crimes. Um, so all sides clearly heavily serbian on the war crime side but like still i mean every, each side was committing yeah what would be considered international war crimes the bitter fighting killed an estimated 100,000 people over the four years the war went on and it displaced over two million people wow in addition and this is where it kind of gets depressing and war crimey an estimated 12 to 15,000 women were raped and this was mainly carried out by Serb forces against Bosnia. So gracious. a majority of the war crimes were committed by Serbs against the Bosniak Muslim population. I just don't get, I, I get that it's a, I don't know, it's wartime. I don't get why rape is such a big part of war. Like I, you hear about it in other conflicts and stuff too. And it's just, it just doesn't make sense, I guess. Yeah. One is, I mean, I, this is certainly, of course, not to defend 
genocide in any way, but it's just part of the gen. It's just part of the genocide playbook. You know, it, the whole goal is to completely culturally destroy a people. And yeah. I mean, the the raping is just, I guess, the violent part of it. The violent part that, I mean, I, I'm not that we don't hear about that, but I guess that isn't as difficult to hear it means they, they set up ghettos like this they destroyed their culture they made it illegal to be muslim in some parts of, of yeah. bosnia it's this entire process of culturally wiping out a, a people and that i mean that did lead to this i mean essentially convictions of genocide and part of that was that this war was characterized in part by this indiscriminate bombing and shelling of cities, which contained civilian populations. It wasn't just like battles between two different military forces. They bombed cities with people in them, just, you know, indiscriminately. They just put artillery fire and bombs into cities. And the, the one battle, if you want to call it that, that kind of epitomized this was the Siege of Sarajevo, which is considered the longest siege of a capital city in modern warfare. And it lasted 1,425 days from April 1992 to February 1996. A capital city was under siege. Sarajevo is the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina? Bosnia and Herzegovina. Yeah. There are pictures you can look up online. If you just look up the siege of Sarajevo, the first thing you'll see is this this council building that's on fire because it was hit by tank artillery. Like... I mean, it, it really was a terrible conflict. If anybody's familiar with the Battle of Stalingrad or Leningrad during World War II, which were two extraordinarily devastating and long battles between the Axis and Soviet powers, it was three times longer than Stalingrad and a year longer than Leningrad. So, and, and this isn't even like a battle between military forces. It's just people in a city. It's, a, it's like D.C. without, I mean, just including the military, but also including not the military, being under siege for four years with artillery fire and mines and yeah. bombs going off. In this siege, 13,000 people are killed and almost half of them, over 5,000 of them were civilians. So this is part of this overwhelming evidence towards these war crimes. And then, I mean, the, I mentioned genocide and ethnic cleansing, but the I guess iconic version of that for this war was what was called the massacre of Srebrenica, which is a, a town in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is mainly Muslim. And in this town, an estimated 8,000 Muslim men and boys were killed. They, they only killed the males. W what about the, yeah, I mean the women, the women were raped. Oh. It's, it's part of that 12 to 15,000. It's, it's not just the women either. It's children and elderly too. That were, yeah. I mean, not necessarily raped, but captured, forced into slavery. I'm glad you many kind of, of them were sent. sort of introduced the main topic of this episode earlier, because for the people gritting their teeth through this first section, section two is a lot more fun. It gets way more fun. Just skip ahead if you need to, but this part's rough. It gets better. <laughs> so I guess, I mean, to, to wrap this up, because we don't need to talk about rape and genocide for any longer. Yeah. Due to the chaos of this war, like I mentioned earlier, many nations were kind of hesitant to get involved. And even the UN didn't really do a great job of getting involved. You know, the UN actually declared these safe zones within Bosnia and Herzegovina, but they were poorly defended and they didn't do a good job of demilitarizing them. In fact, Srebrenica, where the massacre took place, was declared a safe oh, zone at the gracious. time of a massacre. So it's like, 
if genocide is possible inside your safe zone, is it a safe zone? <laughs> and and one of the problems, and this kind of sets us up for Helga Meyer's story, is that these aid convoys from the UN and from NATO, from assisting countries, were just, I mean, they were trucks and tanks full of stuff. So they were slow targets. They were easily attacked and commandeered. Like I mentioned, there were all these groups of bandits and different gangs that were attacking as well as the militarized forces. So, I mean, they were most often robbed or attacked and the, the aid just didn't get to the populations that needed them. And yeah, they were just aiding the attackers. Right. I mean, many countries just stopped sending aid at all because the aid never got where it was supposed to go. And this left the civilians in the war zones without supplies, without food, water, shelter, medical supplies. And many of them starved and froze to death during this war. And it was, I mean, it was a horrific humanitarian crisis. Yeah. Just the civilians we're talking about, not even actual soldiers, just innocent people. Right. Yeah. I mean, you consider like all of these, the, this, the genocide and the civilian attacks, this is on top of the 100,000 casualties estimated. So, I mean, a huge crisis and not many people able to do much about it. And this is where Helga Meyer kind of takes things into his own hands. But uh, before we get into that, we'll give you guys a break. Catch your breath. Go get a drink. I'm going to take a shower. We'll be... <laughs> we'll be back right after this with a little bit more positive material. Oh, no. Matt's gone British. Hello, good chaps. Liking the history, are you? Matt's promised to do the rest of this episode in this poorly represented British accent, unless you go support the show on our website right now. Oh, bollocks. Got myself into a pickle. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start, though please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. All right, welcome back. If you've held on with us this long, you've gotten through the hard part. The next uh, the next half hour will be a little bit more enlightening. History sucks, um, man. Why do we do this to ourselves? I don't know. I'm just sad. <laughs> History's fun. People suck. But, but yeah, that's true. But we do have Helga Meyer to hold on to. So this today's B-Sider is is a, a really interesting character. Um, there's not a lot of backstory on him, and I'm gonna be honest. I got because his his main tool is a souped up Camaro. I got a lot of the information on him from car magazine articles, <laughs> and that's one of the main sources uh, on him on the internet. So 
This guy is a, a Danish ex-Special Forces officer, so he's got some military experience and, and knowledge of Europe and different regions, but he's also a deeply religious man. And after seeing a news story on the television about starving Yugoslavian children, he's kind of compelled to take things into his own hands. So he decides he's going to offer aid himself. He does approach the UN to offer his service, but he's turned down. Now, his idea is to drive, from the beginning, his idea is to drive through Bosnia and Herzegovina in a Camaro delivering aid. So it's kind of a wacky idea to begin with. I was going to ask you why the UN said no to like letting him help. But I'm just imagining the scenario where he walks in <laughs> and says, I don't know. I don't know how you approach the UN, but I'm just imagining him walking into the floor of the UN and saying, hey, guys, I got my Camaro out in the parking lot. How would you feel if I just drove it through the war zone and like dropped off some supplies to people? And they're like, get out. Someone calls yeah, security. Thought he was batshit crazy. <laughs> So he does what any sensible person wanting to drive a Chevrolet Camaro through a war zone would do. And he drives it to the U.S. Air Force Base in Frankfurt, Germany. <laughs> of course. And it, it's here that the U.S. Air Force mechanics and engineers happily turned his Camaro into essentially what was a 220 horsepower tank. <laughs> so American muscle car? Hell yeah! USA! USA! <laughs> <laughs> they take this 1979 Chevrolet Camaro, they strip it down to its essentials on its chassis, and they start by adding an armor plating to the body and rear window, and Kevlar inserts into the door. So all of this is essentially bulletproof, and makes much of the car bulletproof. Um, then they turn to the engine, and they tune it from its stock 180 horsepower to 280 horsepower, and on top of that, they add a nitrous oxide system for anybody who's seen Fast and the Furious, you should be familiar with this. And this system essentially would temporarily give the engine 440 horsepower, so double its horsepower, to help him get out of a jam if need be. <laughs> Just in case. If this wasn't enough, they add run-flat tires and a landmine clearing blade, <laughs> as well as a ram bar to the front of the vehicle. Of course. And then inside the car... They add, in order to help him navigate, a military-grade GPS, thermal imaging system, and ground-to-air frequency radio so he could communicate with air support, along with, you know, a high-tech fire extinguishing system. <laughs> like most cars. Right. The necessities. Right. In order to make the car stealthy and, and able to avoid and evade conflict... All the lights inside and the outside of the car were removed, and the entire thing was painted with this matte black thermal and radar-resistant stealth paint. You know, like all of us can get on our Chevrolet Camaros. <laughs> uh, and this essentially allowed him to operate the car in complete darkness, using only a pair of night vision goggles to see. Now, in reading this, I I don't have a I don't have a problem driving. And I don't have a problem driving at night, but the idea of driving with night vision goggles for some reason just gives me anxiety. <laughs> Even on a highway in America, like let alone a war zone. One time on a family vacation, we were driving through the Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, I don't know if you've ever been down there. Very scenic, very pretty. But you're driving basically through Appalachian Mountains and there's all these tunnels that go through the mountains. And my dad, thinking he's hilarious, is wearing his sunglasses as we're driving <laughs> and then we go into this tunnel and he like 
they're very short for the most part. Like these tunnels are very short. You can see the end of them before you even get into them. But this one tunnel was yeah. a lot longer than he expected it to be. <laughs> and he drove into it and he's like, oh, why did it get all dark all of a sudden? And we're like, uh, are you storing your sunglasses? And he's like, oh. So by the time he realizes and takes the sunglasses off, we're pretty much out of the tunnel. <laughs> but he's like, yeah, I couldn't really see. <laughs> we're going through that one. <laughs> Jesus. He should have had night vision going. Yeah, why not? He'd have been fine. Must have left him or home. Or blinded. I don't know how. <laughs> so... I mean, definitely a souped-up car, decked out, and even full of its estimated 1,000 kilograms of supplies that it could take, it could still accelerate to 125 miles per hour in 13 seconds, which sure as shit is better than any car I've owned. <laughs> <laughs> like, this whole car just sounds so ridiculous. And by nature of my day job, I tend to interact with a lot of car guys classic cars and customized cars and even dealing with some car magazines yeah. and stuff. And like there are two types of car guys. The customization guys are looking at this like this is awesome. I am doing this to my car. <laughs> I will find a way. I'm going to put all this stuff into my car. I'm going to make this happen. And then the classic car guys are hearing this and this is just like you murdered their child. Like, just completely yeah, they're, ruined. They're purists. Yeah. <laughs> Someone has Purists. the original 1979 Chevy Camaro and is just As dying is. listening to this, imagining doing this to their car. You know what? If their car got hit with a mortar, it'd be in pieces in total, and his just kept rolling. <laughs> so he basically gets this thing decked out by the U.S. military. This is... What's that show on, on MTV that they used to do? It's like Pimp, Pimp My, My Ride. Ride. This is the military. Yeah, this is the military's version of Pimp My Ride. And uh, to say it's a tank, a 220 horsepower tank is not really an exaggeration. So why was the Air Force so willing to do all this? I mean, over the UN, I don't have a direct answer, but I'm going to, in a personal way, go back to a phrase my dad always says when he he insists that Americans are different from the rest of the world in one way and it's it's true of all American citizens and it's this attitude I guess or, or a tenacity and it's this I guess I don't know tendency to just say screw you to the rules and do whatever <laughs> the hell you were going to do anyway and I don't know as this is pure opinion exclaimer but i think the united states air force was just stoked to <laughs> trick out this camaro for this crazy dutch special forces dude and it's the u.s military so they have unlimited budget to do it well the thing is he when he was going around he actually introduced himself as mr meyer from the u.s army but he technically wasn't representing any country so i guess it was kind of a slick way for people to get around you know, like I said, there was a lot of threat to being involved in this crisis, and he was a, I guess, low risk in a way, person to to give aid through. Because, like, I mean, it's his own car, and he's not an American citizen. If he dies doing this, they don't. Yeah, care. I mean, his car didn't. Yeah, his car didn't say U.S. Army on it. Right. His car was black. <laughs> he wasn't wearing a uniform. Did he have to pay them to, you know, put all these improvements? Should we call them on his car? 
there's no accounts of them paying of him paying them. In fact, they were the ones that requisitioned the nearly twelve thousand dollars in aid supplies for his first run. Jeez. So, no, nobody mentions him paying them anything. Interestingly enough, at Helga's request, the car wasn't outfitted with any weapons at all. No offensive weapons whatsoever. But why wouldn't he want any weapons on it? I mean, obviously he's going through a war zone and he's got all these defenses added to his car. Why no weapons? Yeah. So I think the no weapons thing is kind of the the pinnacle, not the pinnacle, but the main thing about his his mission and his message. Um, he was offered a Kevl- a bulletproof Kevlar suit and helmet, which he accepted. But in addition to not outfitting his car with any weapons, he denied a gun that he was offered to take as protection, insisting that his pocket knife and his Bible were the only protection he needed. Now, like I said, he was a deeply religious man and he insisted that the Bible and his guardian angels and God were the only things he needed for protection. (laughs) It reminds me of like the, it's in Ephesians where they talk about the full armor of God. It says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And don't forget your pocket knife. That's in the Bible, right? Yeah, I'm <laughs> pretty sure that's how, that, that's how that verse ends. You know, pocket knife, full armor of God, you know, the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the pocket knife of righteousness. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm glad you you brought that up because he, I mean, he really did believe that he was protected. I, I mean, I, I don't buy that he drove into a war zone without a weapon if he didn't. And this is part of, I think, his, his entire mission. Like, he was a man of God. He was a religious man. And it's a testament to his faith. Yeah, not just in his insistence to take no weapons, but in his decision to do this at all. I consider myself a pretty compassionate philanthropic person and and I I feel like I have a lot of empathy for people but I got to admit there's no way and again I'm not as equipped as I think an ex special forces officer would be to drive into a war zone but there's no way in hell I would drive into a war zone to deliver aid. I mean like, I'd be the guy writing checks to like a, an aid service or writing to my congressman but not driving a car through a war zone. I mean, how many people in our age group and society are watching these atrocities happening and thinking that's terrible. I should do something. And the extent of what we do is, you know, post something on Facebook or Twitter about how terrible it is. And someone should do something. No one is thinking I'm going to drive my own car (laughs) into the war zone and help these people out. Yeah. I mean, he clearly had, something beyond even a special forces officer's bravery. And I think that came from his faith. And, you know, I think that I don't know that the verse you read was his specific inspiration, but I think it's part of the idea that he had in that, you know, he was going to do what he considered God's work. At the very least, he felt protected and that he was called to do something more than stand idly by and watch this happen. Right. 
Right. And, you know, to his credit, he was effective. <laughs> I mean, it, despite all of the danger that he went through, you know, the souped up Camaro was very effective. It pretty much remained undetected from police and military forces when he was, you know, kind of underground between missions. And even while running supply runs, he was, you know, he wasn't killed. He was shot num on numerous occasions and chased. And he even took a bullet to that helmet that he accepted. <laughs> but he largely evaded conflict and capture. And part of this is due to the fact that, you know, I didn't mention it before, but the UN trucks, the, the UN trucks and tanks bringing in the aid were painted white with red crosses on them. So they weren't stealth vehicles. And a big sign that said, capture me, intercept me. I'm full yeah, of supplies. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, a black stealth Camaro was probably better. Driving only at night with no headlights on. Right. It was probably better at evading, but he still, I mean, he's one guy driving through these war-torn streets, and he clearly was chased and shot at and managed to never get killed and never be captured. And he was really successful. He completed hundreds of supply <laughs> runs throughout the course of the war. And even after it was over, he continued delivering supplies for almost a decade into 2005. And, and over the course of the war, delivered over a thousand pounds of gear. To, to people so i mean he had a decade long career driving this thing around this war zone and so you know he, you can't really fault him for his faith in a way because he it worked i mean, I mean he, he was he successful he did yeah he was <laughs> he successful. set out to do this thing and he did it yeah so due to this intense bravery and you know coupled with pacifism and religious faith he was given the nickname god's rambo that's an awesome nickname. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he gave a speech to a group of people describing his his efforts, and he kind of self-ordained himself as God's Rambo, but I don't think anybody's going to fault him for giving himself that name because, you know, he, he did all of this stuff in the name of his faith and was successful. And he actually even wrote a book named God's Rambo, which is Dutch for God's Rambo, Unfortunately, this book isn't in English, so anybody who speaks German and Dutch, go ahead and buy the book and read about it and tell us about it. And translate it. Um, and send us your translated copy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he he really kind of embodied this idea. And I, I guess, I mean, even though I can't give you the entire book, there is an excerpt that's translated into English that I'll I'll repeat here for you. He says, in the middle of ruins, I examined the surrounding area with my detector, which reacts to body heat, of course, <laughs> and it displayed body heat in the opposite ruin. I saw candlelight through the boarded up door, and I knocked, and the candle went out immediately. After knocking again and saying, Mr. Meyer, U.S. Army, an old man opened up the door and asked me inside. A young woman was present with her newborn baby. Everyone was dirty and clearly malnourished. So I got soap, water, food, and baby food from my Camaro. The young mother washed herself and her child and gave the newborn something to eat. We sat around the candle silent for a while. The old man read carefully from his Koran and I from my Bible, which is my constant companion. So this is an expert from his book. So I think this, this clearly displays his both his faith and also his, his mission to, you know, indiscriminately help people of all faiths 
given that this specific excerpt, excerpt references a man, a Muslim man reading his Quran. Yeah, he's literally a modern day good Samaritan. You know, I mm-hmm. I don't mean to like get on a Christian soapbox here, but I I actually did give a sermon at my church a couple months ago on the Good Samaritan reading and like he's embodying these Christ-like examples of sacrificing to help his neighbor. You know, it's not just yeah. whoever's convenient to him to help or people that are like him, but he is a Christian who's literally sacrificing or risking his life to help his Muslim neighbor. Right. I was going <laughs> to dig back into another scripture that specifically about the Good Samaritan story. It's where uh, Jesus is telling the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. He says uh, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbors yourself. And he says, do this and you will live. And a young man who's trying to understand him says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus then tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is if you know the story, obviously it's a, a Samaritan who went to help a battered and bruised Hebrew who had, you know, wasn't of the same faith, wasn't of the same mm-hmm. um, economic level, or it was just someone who was in need of help. And that's really the the mindset that Helga Meyer had in this situation. Um, he he, yeah. he wasn't just reaching out to help Christians in need. He wasn't reaching out to help other Danish people in need or people of the same wealth level as him. He was a Christian, a Danish Christian man helping poor, struggling Muslim children, Yugoslavian children who were in these horrible, horrible situations by no fault of their own. And he saw that there was a need and he risked his life to go help these people. It it epitomizes what we're taught to do as Christians. And like... you know, as as someone of faith, like I look at him as an example of why are we not sharing his story in churches? Like, why aren't we going to do this? It's so easy, especially as an American, for us to go help other Americans and other impoverished people. But this is a literal example of someone who's going to act on his faith and what he's taught to do because of his right. faith. Like the, he felt that this was right because of his faith. Sorry, I'll get off of that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's a really good point. And I, I even... Like, especially today where not just in our country, but I think in a lot of countries, there's this sense of nationalism, which borders on, I think, a dangerous disregard for the welfare of other human beings. I think he's a good example, whether you want to take it from a Christian perspective or not. Like, he went on his own accord and helped people who were in need. And it's just not something that, I see commonly in, in today's culture, at least not to this degree. And I don't expect, you know, the average person to drive a Camaro through a war zone, but I think there's little <laughs> you things don't have we can all do. Right. No, you can embody that philosophy without the risk, I think, in a lot of ways that are far easier to do from the comfort right. of your couch. Need is not defined by geopolitical borders or income levels or whatever. Right. People are in need, people need help, and this is an example of someone who recognized that need and in whatever way he was able to do, helped. Not everyone can go do this, but it was a skill set that he had and he made the step of going to the U.S. Air Force to have them 
give him the resources right. he needed to accomplish this goal. And I mean, he clearly was a success story. This is just an amazing guy who, yeah, his story I mean, he's, is not told enough. He's, he's even still alive. He actually currently lives in Germany. And in fact, he still drives the ghost Camaro, which at the, at this point in time is, is actually painted orange. Uh, allegedly has over a hundred thousand miles put on it, which kind of seems short to me given how much use he got out of it. But I mean, the guy's still alive. He's got a book. I I definitely encourage people to look up pictures of the car, which obviously as a podcast, we can't include, but it's a pretty sick looking vehicle. (laughs) I wouldn't mind driving it. We can post some pictures on our, uh, social media feeds once this episode gets published. We'll, so follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'll we'll definitely post pictures of this Camaro. But I mean, it's a cool guy. And you said he's still alive, still lives in Germany. This will, mm-hmm. I think, be our first episode about a living person. Whoop whoop! <laughs> Somebody didn't die. <laughs> Yay history! But that's pretty cool. I mean, this is such a cool story. And like you said, it, it's even hard to find research on him outside of a couple car magazines that are you're really just focusing yeah, I mean, on the details of the car i i literally i mean i used seven different car magazine articles to research (laughs) for this and outside of that it was mainly just research on the bosnian wars that had nothing to do with him so all of the information on the car and and him and his actions pretty much came from car magazines which is cool in and of itself but i mean it's kind of a cool story too because a lot of the people that we've even talked about on this podcast are people that have cool stories and are on some level inspirational but they also Mm -hmm. have their like you know bad sides to them too like we talked about even in our first episode edith wilson was someone that came from a family that still believed in the justification of the lost cause when it came to slavery or yeah some of the atrocities that bartolome de las casas participated in before he had his come to light realization or you know, Jing Shi herself wasn't the sweetheart that, <laughs> you know, she did some pretty bad things too. But this guy really seemed to have pure intentions and acted on them to yeah, make a difference. I don't know that you can fault him in any way. Like he did, I like, I can't pick out one thing he did wrong. The biggest thing I can pick out, and this is so nitpicky that it's a joke is that he got some free car upgrades from the U.S. Air Force that he didn't pay for. That's a win, too. God forbid. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, you can't fault him, really, for any of his actions. And and I think that's that's the most impressive thing about him, is that he managed to do this feat and save people and, and make a positive impact with zero negative impact. It's kind of amazing that, like, Chevy isn't making a bigger deal out of this guy. Like... Tell his story. Right? He's using your product <laughs> to do this amazing thing. Yeah. And this was, what, 25 years ago now? Come on, Chevy. Get on this. Make a movie I out mean, of the this Camaro is The Camaro is a currently pr- produced car. Right. Like, they brought it back and started reproducing it. You'd think this would have been... And he still drives ad. it. Contact us, Chevy, if you want some marketing ideas for your, <laughs> your Camaro. Yes, we are not bashing Chevy in case you want to invest some sponsorship <laughs> dollars in this show. Matt has driven many a Chevys in his life. I drove one, I but I got some gripes about that. But if you'd like to, uh, Chevrolet, sponsor this episode. Or Ford. Ford, if you want to sponsor, we'll just completely bash Chevy on our next episode. So hit us up. 
historiesbeside at gmail.com. Honestly, if anybody if anybody's willing to offer an upgrade for radar resistant matte black paint <laughs> and a, a mine wedge, I'll buy that car. You know that's going to be on a future Subaru. <laughs> hey, you know what? The way things are going, you might need it soon. <laughs> All right, you ready for some quiz questions? I'm as ready as, as I think I can be. I feel like they're either going to be Camaro-based or Bosnian War-based, and either one I'm poorly prepared for. So <laughs> let's find out. We'll be right back. Hey, it's your old buddy Rick Garrett, host and creator of Rick's Rambles Podcast. Every Monday morning, we do 15 minutes of trivia and fun facts and a feel-good story of the week, memories of the 60s and 70s, and much, much more. Join me every Monday morning, Rick's Rambles Podcast, on your favorite podcast provider. All right, now it's time for today's quiz. We end every episode with a short three-question quiz to kind of test today's host's knowledge of its topic. And maybe you, the listeners, are following along or know something about it that you might be able to answer some of these questions as well. You ready? Boop, boop. Yes, sir. I kind of themed these questions for you. So today's quiz is the theme, What's That Name? What's that name? All these questions will be be a name. Question number one. What does the name Yugoslavia mean? Oh, Lord. (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't know. This is terrible. It's kind of simple and obvious, I guess, but not really. You, You won't know it, I guess. It just means land of the South Slavs. So, like, the countries okay. in the southern part of the Slavic Peninsula. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense, because it's just a like big collective nation of those countries. Yeah. <clears throat> Zero for one. Wah, wah. Question number two. Helga Meyer was a member of a Danish Special Forces unit composed of around 150 highly trained soldiers with special expertise in counterterrorism, demolitions, parachuting and combat, swimming, infiltration, sabotage, reconnaissance, and more. What was this unit called? The Jaeger Corps. Yes. Bonus question. What symbol did they wear identifying their status in the Special Forces unit? Uh, extra credit uh an eagle a bird uh it was just a maroon beret with a brass emblem featuring a hunter's bugle all right (laughs) that question didn't count you still got that one right and your final question prior to its announcement the car was originally called the chevrolet panther but once it debuted as the camaro no one really knew what the name meant. Where does the name Camaro come from? Oh, God. Not much of a car guy, huh? No, I'm not. I have no idea. My dad could probably answer this, but I have no <laughs> idea. I'm going to ask him this tomorrow to see if he knows. Well, the official company explanation when it debuted in 1966 
was that it was an old French slang term for camaraderie and friendship. Hmm. Although... Wow, I would never have guessed that. Some of the GM brass told the press that it's a small, vicious animal that eats Mustangs. Of course. <laughs> That's definitely just propaganda. <laughs> Later on, this, these legends grew to include a rare disease that kills horses, or, you know, Mustangs. Jesus. <laughs> In reality, it's just a unique name that met Chevrolet's main requirement of starting with the letter C, like Corvette, Chevelle, Corvair. Not real creative. What did I drive? Cobalt. Okay, that meets a C. My Cavalier. first car, I can't even remember. Cavalier, thank you. I was thinking, that was my first how car. awesome would the story be? I mean, this is an awesome story anyway. How much better would it have been if this was like a souped up Cavalier or like a Chevy Malibu? <laughs> I mean, an old Malibu would have been a little, like a little cooler than a Cavalier. I feel like the Cavalier just wouldn't have looked as good. I almost feel like the United States Air Force guys would have just laughed at him and told him to go away. <laughs> <laughs> but cool nonetheless. I would love to see a, a beat up old Chevy Cavalier with like tank armor driving around <laughs> Bosnia. <laughs> then you wouldn't have wrecked that car. As I did most of my cars. Or you would have just wrecked the other car. I'd like to restate, I'm not a car guy. <laughs> All right. Well, that All was... Right, one of three. I'll take it. A fun one, <laughs> minus, you know, the first half of this episode. Just everyone skip right to about, what, 31 minutes and... 30 minutes. 30 minutes will get you past the bad part. Then it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's History's B-Side. We'll see you guys next week. History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service. And follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Melito and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.